Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey, what's up, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, this is Scott Groves with the On The Edge Podcast. I am here with my my recent but feels like old friend, Philip Stutz. And uh, Philip is the owner of a company called Bing Win Big Media. And he wrote this book, which I love. And if you're not watching this on YouTube, it's called The Undefeated Marketing System. And when I was getting ready to interview Philip, I was telling uh, Chris, who you guys know here, he's my, he's my Jamie. Um, he's like, so what does this guy do again? I'm like, well, here's the interesting story. Philip started working on political campaigns that led to owning one of the biggest data sets in the entire country. And Philip's the guy who politicians go to when they're like, hey, uh, the next presidential election, give us some data. And he's like, well, in precinct 13, outside of Cleveland, Ohio, single moms who shop at Target are going to decide that precinct, which is going to decide the state, which is going to decide the election. So let's come up with a marketing campaign to attract those people. And my first question is, did I nail it in that description of what you do, Philip? Man, I cite the best description because when you think about it, whether you're a real estate agent or you're running a company and you're trying to sell to customers, wouldn't you want to market in that way to those customers? Like I was, I did a, a podcast this morning and I was the guy was like, what's what's it like marketing, you know, politicians? And I said, well, you know what? I, I don't know. I could. I mean, I like the, the politician. Fine. I'm obsessed with the voter. I, I want to know what the voter believes, what they what moves them. What what would get a voter to vote for an unknown or an, even an unsavory candidate? Yeah, Ooh, that's that's interesting to me. And so that's. You know, the book, The Undefeated Marketing System, was born out of that because I was like, why aren't business owners running marketing the same way? A lot of times, Scott, you find business owners run out and go, I, I hired a marketing agency and we created a brand and a logo and a website. We spent $40,000 and all that. And then I'll go, cool. What do your customers want? And they go, <laughs> I don't know. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you want to know that first before you go out and spend any money? And so that was that's how we do it in politics. And if you're I mean, I'll, I'll keep going. But it's like if a guy in uh, Nevada, like we just did the Senate race in Nevada and we did not win it. We lost it by the razor's edge. But if the guy running for Senate in Nevada sits down and says, I want to run for the U.S. Senate. And I say, OK, cool. What do you believe? Inevitably, the the egotistical politician will tell me like 27 different things they want to run on, you know? And I'm like, Oh Jesus. You know, like nobody wants to hear your 27 policy issues. Right. But what we do is then we go and use our data and survey and figure out with voters, what do they care most about within those 27 issues? So it's not telling a politician what he should say it's telling the politician, here's where you have alignment with your voters. And of the 27 things you want to run on, their only care, if you want to get elected, you talk about these two issues of the 27, and we're not talking about the other 25 again. Like, that's the secret. That's how the politics is. That's how political campaigns are won. And so it's the same thing I'd tell you for a business owner or a real estate agent. Like, if you're out there talking to to you know, your customer base in a way that doesn't reflect what they're looking for, then you're just wasting time and wasting money. So find out where you have alignment with them beyond what you're trying to sell and then market to that for exponential returns. And, and by the way, I, we don't even have to dig into this, but I just want to say this as an aside and a compliment to you. Like you've worked on these high profile political campaigns, presidential campaigns, senatorial races, and in your book, The Undefeated Marketing System, I love that most of your like examples, you drilled down to a termite and pest control company. Because one of the things that I love most about you, you know, we met obviously in a very open space where people are really vulnerable because we're talking about dad issues and family issues and whatnot, and that was cool. And then as I got to know you, I'm like, this guy is way more humble than he should be based on what he's accomplished and the businesses he runs. And so I love that that bled through in your book that you're like, oh, I could have talked about all these people and name dropped all these 
you know, uh, campaigns that I've worked on, but you were like, let's just talk about the termite company that needs to feed their family and attract the local consumer and how they can do that in their market and what's important. Because one of the examples you're like, I went to this termite guy's website and it's like him and some other hillbilly uh, standing in front of their truck, not yeah. really like, like not really marketing to the people who they want to serve. And you're like, bro, you got this all wrong. Like we got to fix this. They're two of the nicest guys ever. I mean, I felt terrible writing about them and I didn't use their names because they're such good dudes. But they're like two, one's like 250, one's like 300 pounds. And in their website, it was they're leaning against a car in t-shirts and shorts. And I'm like, no mom is going to go, oh my God, we have roaches in the house. Let me Google pest control companies in my area. And oh, this one pops up and oh my God these two very large men leaning up against a, a car and, and with no, you know, logos, no uniforms, no nothing. That is not safe for them. That's right. like the dumbest thing. And they were spending all this money when we, when we came to them and, you know, ultimately uh, in, in one of the pest control companies we worked with, Scott, we had this crazy idea and we were working with a national pest control company, a different one. And they they were innovative enough to go along with this idea. And the idea was we were going to run a marketing campaign, spend a shit ton of money, their money, and not acquire one new customer. And they went along with it. And what we did was we went to their entire customer base, which is around a couple million people, and we marketed to give them discounts if they left us a five-star review. And so what happened was we acquired 50,000 five-star reviews. So whether you go into Cincinnati or you go into Topeka, Kansas, or you go into Cleveland, Ohio, if you go in Google and say, Hey, I need a pest control company in Cleveland. You know, obviously they, we, we market them to be in the top three of the STO because you have to be in the top three. It's probably like a real estate agent. You better be right. in the top three of people are Googling or you're not going to, no one's going to find you. Right. Right. And then the question is, what's the difference that makes the difference? Because they're only there because they want the bugs dead. That's yeah. it. Right. People are buying a house. They only want to buy a house. Right. Right. They want a place to but live. The question is when they look at all three, they go to that comparison shop. What's the difference that makes the difference? And so in the pest control story, you have Tom's Pest Control in Cleveland that has 37 five-star reviews. You have Nico's Pest Control Company that's got 280 five-star reviews. Or you have this client of ours and they got 50,000 five-star reviews. If you're a, a, a mom with kids in the house or your family that's going to leave your dog around who, who do you want in your house? The 50,000 five-star you campaign or our uh, company or the 61 yeah. five-star view. And so that is an evergreen campaign that has lasted since 2018. We started that campaign. They're still running it. It's the number one uh, campaign they've ever run in the history of the company. It didn't make money on the front end. It made them infinite money forever on the back end and that's what we're trying to help people understand because again if people are googling real estate agents in your area you're a dime a dozen so the the customer is only going to look at one or excuse me two maybe three so you better be up there with seo and then once you get to the two or three what's the difference that makes it what makes you stand out so when we talk about understanding what that customer is looking for besides buying a house, which is tr probably trust in the real estate market. How are you developing that? So uh, I'll give you one real estate example. We work with the um, uh, a title company in the state of Florida and they're a B2B company, right? Their customer are real estate agents. Right. And I write about this in the book, but I, you know, they came to us and they were just, they were just a regional title company. Is this, the, four years is this the puppy dog one? Yep. I love it. I loved it so much. That, that was a great example. Sorry, go for it. Yeah. So they were just this little regional title company, right? And uh, they started growing. They brought us in and said, hey, we need to distinguish ourselves. And so we said, cool. So we 
what we did. I, so I have a partnership. You said this earlier, but I have a partnership with a large data collection analytics and AI company in America. And so in our database, we have 240 million American consumers, 550 million connected devices. We're tracking 10 billion with a B, 10 billion online purchasing decisions every day and a trillion searches. And so we were able to overlay all the real estate agents on their list, track their movements online, and spit out a massive data report telling them everything they want to know about every real estate agent in their market, not like individually, but as an aggregate. And what we found was that 61% of the real estate agents in their market own dogs. Now, the owner of the business thought I was going to come to him and market his title company. And I said, yes, but we're going to brand you with dogs everywhere. And so we ran an ad campaign with dogs in it. We, we branded dogs. We did all these things with dogs. Um, every, where, every time they did a closing, a real estate agent would come in and go, hey, saw the dog ad. I have two dogs. I love that ad. That was amazing. You guys are the best, right? That company now is the third largest title company in the state of Florida. Third largest. So, you know, you would imagine after COVID, how many people moved to Florida to say this yeah. is the third largest title company is massive. Yeah. And there's a few giant um, national ones like Tycor and lawyers or whatever that like you're probably never going to beat because they have national presence. But um, for a regional for a regional title company that's only in one state to be number three. I know this is not relevant to anybody who's not in the real estate or, or lending space. That's a big effing deal. Like that's that's a really big deal. So kudos on that like well, the question is did the dog ads make them the third biggest and the answer is hell no because <laughs> that'd be stupid to say something like that did the dog ads build their brand and help them grow along the way and give them an excellent brand reputation and everybody they came in contact with and the answer was a thousand percent yes and so we're still working with that company, even in this market, because they're like, hey, we have to still be the great brand. And even though, you know, real estate's struggling right now or starting to struggle, they don't care. They're like, we're all in. We're not going anywhere. And we're going to be the best in the state one day. So it's pretty interesting in that regard. So so here's another reason why I have a ton of I had a ton of respect for you as a person. But after I read the book, I have a ton of respect for you as a business person. I tend to shit on branding people because I'm like, okay, that's cool. You figured out your color palette and you came up with a cool logo and you came up with a brand, but branding and marketing doesn't matter if it's not partnered with lead generation and generating business and putting money in the coffers, right? Because I could spend $200,000 tomorrow on a redesign of Consolidated Coaching or the Scott and Dallas mortgage team, and it could look all pretty, and we could have all the takeaways and the websites and the funnels and everything. But if it doesn't convert into clients one way or another, either with that five-star review idea or with actual butts in seats and you know the phone ringing, then it was just a waste of money. And what I liked in your book is you were talking about like, hey, yeah, this is a little bit about branding and marketing, but it's a lot about A, B testing different ways to get to market fast and get consumers engaged fast. So, you know, when somebody comes to you and you come back with, hey, you should be the dog title company. That's a big leap of faith for them to say, oh, well, we know what you charge and you came back with dogs. So can you talk a little bit about how you're going to market and testing this and actually, you know, actually putting putting dollars in pockets? Yeah. So I actually I wrote a book in 2018. The first book I wrote was called Fire Them Now. It's about unethical marketers. And part of what I found in my research for that book by talking to over 100 CEOs was uh, A-B testing is is done by almost every marketing. If, if your marketing firm didn't do an A-B testing on one message versus another message, the that's you know almost fraudulent. But the way that 99% of marketers do it is they go, hey, we sat around a table, Scott, and we had a brainstorming session and we came up with these two ideas. Let's go A-B test them. I think that is completely fraudulent. What I'm saying is I only A-B test what we found in the data would work. And then we're A-B testing to figure out which one works the best. So for instance, we did um, a protein powder company. They're an eight-figure company. And 
uh, we found in their data a bunch of different things. Uh, you know, uh, they, I think 50% of their market was vegan, vegetarian. So they offered a vegan, vegetarian protein, like a pea protein powder and all this stuff. But one of the things we also found was something like 73% of their market hated soda. Seriously, like, isn't that crazy? Like, how would you find that out? But we did. They hated and soda. Hated soda. So we told them, hey, we're going to A-B test these 10 things we found in the data. But we want to do a... You know, because I come from politics, so I, I like the art of the negative ads really exciting for me. In fact, that's probably going to be the third book I write is uh, is that, you know, the art of the negative ad. I call it, you know, it's like comparative advertising. I call it, I, I kind of coined the term uh, comparatizing. Yes. But the, the point is, is that we A-B tested all these ideas from the data. And of the 10 ideas, the number one, the number one message that blew through the roof, it was the most successful uh, ad test that had ever been done in the history of this eight figure company trying to go to nine figures. And it was the anti-soda ad. And it not only was it, it, it got 50% more clicks than the number two out of 10 ads that we tested. Wow. And it got a 20% higher conversion rate from just compared to the number two ad. So we knew all 10 messages would work. We just didn't know which one would work the best. And so we did this A-B test on the 10 messages, but this is what we found. So my point is like everything I do and the whole reason I wrote the book was to eliminate the risk of the business owner. Does that make sense? And so yeah. by, by telling that business owner, hey, we A-B tested at a small you know, uh, amount, uh, what messages would work and what wouldn't work. And we found out that these two messages, the vegan, vegetarian, and the, the anti-soda were the top two. But the top one would blow through the roof. And it was the most successful ad they'd ever run. Why? I didn't guess. I didn't sit around a table. I, I'd love to tell you I'm a genius that came up with an anti-soda ad. I'm not. I just listened to what the customer wanted and delivered what they were looking for. And And why is that? so rare like is it is it because you pay an absurd amount of money for this data set or you just you have this insight because of your political background like why isn't this the norm that all marketing companies go to the data first hey scott you're interested in growing your mortgage business or your coaching business or whatever let's go to the data hey you know only 10 percent of your possible clientele are libertarians they don't want to hear this shit wind down the podcast be a little bit more centric and advertise in this way um, like why, why isn't that the go-to metric for, for like the jumping off point for marketing companies? Like, why are you guys so different? Because we, we didn't start in the corporate marketing world. We started from a totally different industry and we saw, uh, vulnerabilities and gaps in the corporate marketing world. And we brought, you know, our strengths into that. Um, I, I don't know if I'd started in the marketing world, I probably wouldn't have even thought about it. Right. <laughs> but because I worked in politics where data, every every move we make is rooted in what the data tells us. That's just how the approach I would take in the marketing world. So it's funny. I, I honestly, other than like Gary Vaynerchuk, I don't know another marketer. Like I don't, I don't, I get asked all the time, oh, th these guys must be your competitors. And I go, I don't even know who that is. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't care. Um, everybody does their own thing. This is my thing. And I just don't have a clue what the other than like, I listen to CEOs. So CEOs tell me this is what this marketing agency did. This is what, the, and I'm like, what? No. Ooh, ah, why'd you do that? You know? And, and so, yeah, that's where I get all my data from. Like when I say data, like uh, rhetorical data from CEOs telling me about the ways they were taken advantage of the ways they were scammed, the ways that they spent money for a year the ways they got locked into, you know, contracts they couldn't get out of. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to go back to kind of your genesis. So maybe we're stepping back in time a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about your political journey? Because you already mentioned you love the art of the negative ad. You bring this political mindset. And I have to imagine you know, I've donated to campaigns across the spectrum, whether it be, you know, Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard, um, the Libertarian Party, somehow right, so you're over three in those. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm a total, I'm a, I'm a total loser. I'm a total loser. Um, <laughs> I, I did vote for Trump the first time because no, I didn't vote for Trump. I voted for Pence. I voted for libertarian. 
uh, not Pence. Um, Jesus, now I can't remember his name. The the governor from New Mexico who uh, ran uh, Gary Johnson. Gary Johnson. Yeah, I voted for Gary Johnson. Yeah. So no, I haven't I voted. I campaigned with Gary Johnson in two thousand in New Mexico. I love it. I I have not voted for a winner since George W. Bush. Let's just put it that, that way. Um, but but can you well, take good. us? Hey, by the way, I was a senior person on that campaign. So see, uh, my my effect got you. Uh, my my marketing skills. Got acquired one vote that no other other person has ever been able to get. Perfect. From a winning point. Perfect. So, um, so talk about that. Can you talk? You know, give us the sixty second Reader's Digest of your political journey because I know you've worked. Your company's worked on over fifteen hundred campaigns. That's a lot, and I know you're also kind of brand agnostic. It's just a client. You're not only in one camp or the other. So, can you tell us about your political journey? Yeah. So, uh, I'm going to make you feel like a piece of shit right now. And Go I'm for sorry it. To do this I'm to totally you. cool. Yeah, we've had fifteen hundred and thirty-three wins. Not holy uh, shit. Yeah, not not not. We're on fifteen hundred campaigns. So uh, we we ended up having I think a um, hundred and ten or hundred and eleven wins in two thousand twenty-two uh, at my company. And so um, yeah, the, we we've done a lot. But uh, I I'm a first generation ADD kid. So. Uh, I, there, there wasn't ADHD that got brought in later. I was just ADD and I was put on Ritalin in high school in the eighties and told, you know, uh, you know, they, like, I don't know. I was just putting dumb classes and all that stuff. So ultimately, I guess my point is I could really only have a job when I got out of college or something I was really excited about. Otherwise I didn't have the attention span. Like I had friends of mine, that were going to sell like truck beds and I'm like, please put a gun to my head. I don't even, that sounds horrible. And they're like, Oh no, you can make a ton of money. And I go, I don't care about money. Like, that's not, I, I don't, that I would never want to do something like that. And so I cared about two things uh, growing up college football and political marketing campaigns. I love campaigns. I, I was just fascinated. I was a political science minor in college um, and just, studied politics, read books, but it wasn't about like going to work on Capitol Hill and writing laws or being a politician. Like I hate all that shit. I wanted to be the guy helping get people elected. I, I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. And so, yeah, I mean, I got into, by the way, said no 17 year old ever. Like I really want to be the marketer for these political campaigns. Like that, that's, a, that's gotta be know. a rarity. I like it. I was, I was, I thought it was super cool. And I came of age, I'm, you know, I lean right. So I came of age when the Republicans were taking over Congress for the first time in 40 years. And I saw that history being made. Um, and I thought, and then Bill Clinton being elected and then the Republicans taking over control. And I just went, man, there's something that's like do or die in politics that your, 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 your reputation your everything you do is on the line every day. And there was something really exciting about that, Scott. And so um, I ended up working on a presidential campaign in 1996. I worked on Bob Dole's campaign. That was my first campaign. And then as he ran against Clinton and lost, but I then started just being a homeless vagabond that traveled the country for basically six, seven years working on political campaigns. Um, I ran uh, a governor's race in Louisiana, U.S. Senate race in South Dakota. I worked on presidential campaign, multiple presidential campaigns, lived out in San Diego, lived out in um, uh, New Mexico, uh, lived in, you know, in Washington, D.C., kind of based out of D.C. in between. And it was a it was a great ride. I mean, there was a three year period, I think 2000, 2001, 2002, where I had a total of 21 days off in three years. And that was including weekends. So uh, you you had to love what you did. Like and I loved it. I, I didn't honestly this like it kind of sucks now that I'm 48. I didn't really care about money. I, I, I was living on adrenaline every day and in significance. <laughs> <laughs> and probably got me in a lot of trouble down the road. But at the time, you know, I wasn't married and I was single and I didn't have any responsibilities and I wasn't bold in anybody. It was it was a great period of my life to learn the skills of how to market politicians, to learn to be on the biggest stages that exist in politics, uh, to be on presidential campaign stages and 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 to have to to perform and show up or you would never get another job again if you didn't you know, become a uh, an A player political marketing operative. And so 
for me, that's where it is. By the time I was 30, I was completely burned out. And I spent 10 years just having a one man firm where I was just a political consultant for like 10 years. And then I woke up and I was like 40 years old and I go, crap, if two clients drop me, I'm in deep trouble. And so I decided I was going to start a, uh, a media firm called Go Big Media. And that was in 2015. We're eight years old. We've done about 75 million in rev. And we've, um, we've worked for U.S. Senate races, governor's races, you know, hundreds of congressional races, state races all over the country. That, that firm is just rolling. And I've got a partner that runs that company now. And then we broke I broke off in 2018 and started the corporate marketing agency and wrote all these books. And then since then, we've built out a couple other sub businesses, a PR company, a media buying company. Wow. Um, and, a, and a political fundraising company. And so now we have CEOs in all those companies and I help manage those CEOs. So uh, you said something out of everything you just said, congrats on all the success, by the way, and congrats, congrats at 40 years old realizing like, oh, I got to grow this bigger or find something else because I'm one or two clients away from like, I don't know, I got a kid now, I got a family, I got a wife, I got yeah. to actually worry oh, about I this I got a shit. mortgage, I got everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, hold on, I'll even say this. In 2015, all right, I'm, I'm about to turn 41. I made $75,000 that year. In 2015, this is not 10 years ago, $75,000. We had just moved to Florida. We had just built a house. I had a one and a half year old. And I have lived on adrenaline uh, as a drug for so long that I'm like, screw it. Let's go. I mean, like, I didn't realize how primed I was to be an entrepreneur because I just keep shoving all the chips on the table. Uh, my wife probably wants to kill me because I, right. I don't have any, I don't have any debt. I have five different companies. We have 45 employees. And I keep shoving the chips in the table at the end of the year and I don't take anything off. And I love it because I'm, I want to build stuff and I, I'm in it for the long haul. Well, just take a little disbursement, you know, fund the kids 529 plan and then you'll be fine. Uh, but no, that's, by the way, I didn't know this about I, I actually have a theory that with a 529 plan is if, if only if I'm successful, I wouldn't even have to worry about a 529 plan. So that's fair. That's kind of I've, Justin Donald probably wouldn't like me very much, but that's kind of my, <laughs> my bullet. Oh, man. Like, I, I didn't know that about you, by the way. I, you know, I know a little bit of insight into your success and your yeah. finances from conversations that we've had. I had no idea that you effectively were starting at neutral less than eight years ago. So kudos to everything you've built, man. Um, I, I want you, because you mentioned Bob Dole was probably one of the first campaigns you worked on or the first campaign you worked on. So the, tell me if I've made this up in my brain or if this is if you remember this as succinctly as I do, the Bob Dole Bill Clinton campaign is the first time that I noticed because I also lean right. Uh, you know, I'm probably a Republican. I like to think I'm a libertarian. Um, was the first time that I realized that the conglomerate mass media was was quite biased um, against Republicans and to the left. The reason for this is. At that time, there were already kind of rumors starting to spread about Clinton's infidelity and maybe he was a little inappropriate with women and maybe there was this whitewater scandal where like a bunch of old people in Arkansas lost all their money. But Bob Dole accidentally said Brooklyn Dodgers instead of Los Angeles Dodgers and that was run on every media show every half hour on the half hour for two weeks as proof that he was out of touch with America and he was too old for the job and he hadn't been in a grocery store and bought his own milk in 15 years and on and on and on because he said Brooklyn Dodgers instead of Los Angeles Dodgers. Do I remember that correctly or am I making this up in my head to justify my own belief in what the media does? Well, so all of that is true, but no, the media has been that biased in throughout history it's just that's just when you noticed it right right that's what i'm saying that's when i became aware of it so it was it yeah. was that moment when they when yeah. they just kept playing brooklyn dodgers brooklyn dodgers brooklyn i'm like this doesn't make any sense like this guy over here yeah he's young and he's hip and he just went on arsenio hall and played the saxophone but he might be a criminal and a rapist 
and this guy is like a war hero, and he just said Brooklyn Dodgers, and they're going right. to castrate him. Like it just didn't it it didn't compute, and that's that was the age I was probably when was Bob Dole was that ninety two or ninety six ninety six ninety six. So I was seventeen years old. I was just getting ready to leave for the army because I remember Clinton got sworn in as I signed my paperwork for the army, and my dad was like, "That's a bad move." Um, <laughs> but he's like, "This guy's going to be your commander in chief." Um, and so yeah, I, I the the bias became um, very clear to me at that point uh all right so anyway do you have a do you have a highlight on a political campaign that you can share that's not signed away in some nda where you're like man we really pulled a rabbit out of a hat here or we came up with this campaign promise or idea or slogan where you know we took a seller dweller and made him the front runner do you have do you have like one that really sticks out in your mind of like oh this is the success case i like to pitch when i'm in a when i'm in a pitch meeting so uh, I have, yeah, I'll give you one. His name's Ron DeSantis. You familiar with him? <laughs> I, may, I may have heard of him. Uh, in 2018, he was down about 10 points with about 90 days to go. He was running against a guy named Andrew Gillum. Andrew Gillum was uh, an African-American candidate. He was the mayor of Tallahassee, Florida, and he was beating Ron DeSantis by about 10 points. And so um, a third-party group came to, to us and said, uh, we want to help DeSantis. And uh, there's this, the, uh, you're, it's, it's becoming more, um, shedding more light around the country now, but I, I've been on the forefront of like school choice, the school choice movement since like 2004. Oh yeah. And I'm so, a big fan for a decade. Right. And so uh, we, uh, we've ha found this, this, and I followed this sort of undefeated marketing system. I tell the story in, in the book, but, but uh, we found a clip of Andrew Gillum saying that when he was elected governor, he was going to eliminate charter schools in the state of Florida. And so we decided, well, there's an angle we should run a, a, a sort of an outsider campaign. We weren't coordinating with the DeSantis campaign. We couldn't legally. And so we took that clip. Um, we, we decided to figure out where who would be most affected by that. And obviously, when we looked through the data and looked through everything, we found out obviously it was charter school parents. Well, in the state of Florida, it was something like 90% of charter school kids were African-American. So we targeted about 130,000 African-American moms. Now, how did we find them? Well, we geofenced every single uh, charter school in the state of Florida. So if you don't know what geofencing is, it's basically drawing an imaginary line around the building of each school and then pulling the IP addresses from the, that school and then being able to eliminate the people that we noticed were coming in and out every day, like UPS drivers and FedEx drivers and uh, principals and things like that, and just pulling out the people that were showing up right at drop-off and pick-up. And so we ended up getting about 120, 130,000 African-American moms in our database. We ended up showing that ad and running a campaign and directing those ads to them, to those moms. We showed them that one ad that we made of Andrew Gillum saying he's going to eliminate charter schools. We, on an average, I think it was viewed 3.1 million times, which means that they saw it about 30 times on average each. When the election day came, Ron DeSantis won by 30,000 votes out of something like six, seven, eight million votes. I can't remember what the number one. Tiniest of margins. When you compared the African-American female vote for Ron DeSantis in 2018, he got 90,000 African-American female votes, even though he was running against an African-American in the state. And Donald Trump got 60,000 African-American votes in 2016. And Rick Scott, who's the current senator, U.S. senator in the state, who was the, at the time the current governor, he got 30,000 African-American. And he was on the ballot with Ron DeSantis. So Ron DeSantis ended up getting 60,000 more African-American female votes. He won by 30,000. The Wall Street Journal said it that school choice moms tipped the balance of the election for Ron DeSantis. And what why why do i tell you that that's such a good story well obviously DeSantis is probably going to run for president um but we had a pandemic three years ago and 
we could have had Andrew Gillum as our governor instead of Ron DeSantis. I live in Florida, so that's why I say we. And what happened was about 18 months after that election, Andrew Gillum, the married father of two, mayor of Tallahassee, got caught with gay prostitutes smoking meth in a hotel in Miami. I don't care if he's straight or gay. I'm, I, I really don't. But my point is, is that that guy was almost the governor of one of the, lar- of one of the largest states in the country during a pandemic. Who wanted then, to already th- shut down school choice, which means it was not going to go well for, right. for the school age kids. Uh, well, during he would have done whatever the unions did. And you can see what happened when the unions were controlled in, in yeah, New York and in, California. In California. That's why we, that's, that's one of the reasons our kids no longer go to school in California. And so my point ultimately is elections have consequences. A lot is on the line. And it's serious business. That's how we look at businesses now when we market them. There's a lot on the line. There's people's lives at stake. And I'm really proud of the work we did, but it almost never happened because Ron DeSantis was down 10 freaking points with 90 days to go. And he won by like a quarter of 1%. And I was proud to be a part of that. It, uh, it was one of the, it was, listed as the largest geofarming campaign, geofarming marketing campaign in the history of American politics. And that's because of the way we were able to extract IP addresses from each of these schools and then target those IP addresses with our ads. I love it, man. You know, I'd love to get your feedback here because you're in the know and you understand this stuff. You know, going to the 2022 election, Ron DeSantis crushes by like, what did you win? 60, 60, 19 points, 19 points, 59 to 40. So he went from winning by 0.3 to 19 points. And, you know, I've got to think I've got, I've got, it's got to be one of three theses for, is that a word? Thesis is thesis size. I don't know. Uh, it's gotta be one of three reasons why he won by a landslide either one way more Republicans moved to Florida than anybody truly understands due to the pandemic. That's number one. Um, Number two, he's basically a shoo-in for president in, you know, 2026 because he's just got that much popularity and brand awareness. Or number three, and this one to me is more interesting and I start to put on the tinfoil hat, you know, he enacted a whole lot of legislation to cut down on voter fraud. And I'm pretty sure it would have been on the front of the New York Times every day for the last, you know, 90 days had that implementation of voter fraud regulations prevented certain affected groups from not being able to vote. So I think we can kind of throw that one out the window, but it's like, is he just a shoe in for our next president? Uh, Did way more Republicans move to Florida or does like, I don't know, voter fraud actually happen maybe a little bit more than we think. And that, you know, Republicans might be a little further ahead than we think. I know I'm asking you to commentate on a ton of stuff that may be out to your purview, but I feel like you have yeah. better insight than I do. Uh, on the presidential thing, no, he's no shoe in at all. I mean, there's this guy, I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is Donald Trump, and yes. he has dominated the core Republican Party. And so if you've got 19 candidates running or 10 candidates running, who of the 10 will get the most votes when all those votes are split? And frankly, that's just going to be Trump right now. Right now, so right. So what... I get asked all the time, um, who's going to win? Nobody knows. And I ask me about uh, who's going to win each you know, state primary state or caucus state about two weeks before the election. And then I can give you an answer. But before then, it's all BS and everybody's just making stuff up. But what I'm saying is it's wide open. He's got a great shot, just like a lot of other candidates, including Trump, to get the nomination. Uh, as far as people moving to the state. Yeah, a lot of people move to the state, but they move from like New York. Like, were they Republicans or were they uh, Democrats in New York that decided, you know what, I'm moving here for freedom and we need to keep this guy. The other thing is what nobody, well, a lot of people talk about, but you don't hear it a lot, probably. Uh, Miami-Dade County, Hillary Clinton in 2016, even though Donald Trump won the state of Florida, she beat beat Trump in Miami-Dade County by 16 points there. Uh, Miami-Dade County would be like, I, I'm, I'm, it's something around there. It'd be like the 10th largest state in the country if it was a state. Um, and Ron DeSantis won Miami-Dade County. It's the most Hispanic district in the state of Florida. And he won it. So what did he do? He flipped Hispanics in the state four years later. Right. To a, a degree that Republicans have never seen. 
Yeah. Um, and so that was that was massive. As far as the voter fraud, what DeSantis did was he said no drop boxes, no, no bulk drop-offs of ballots. You can't just run around and you know, hey, I'm Philip, I'm gonna go around and pick up 700 ballots and just drop them in a drop box. Right. He said, we're not doing that. If you want to vote, go vote. By the way, we I mean, I had to do this. You have to show your ID. <clears throat> right. You have to show your ID and you can't uh, do mass ballot harvesting. That's called ballot harvesting in California, in Nevada, where we just lost that Senate race. A lot of ballot harvesting going on by just cleaning that up. DeSantis won from, like you said, 0.3 of 1 percent to 19 points. So is that like I get asked this question a lot. Was there election fraud in 2020? Right. Stop the steal. Right. No. <laughs> I mean, yes, there probably was election. There's always election fraud. Yeah. Was there some mass election fraud? I no one's ever shown me any any real evidence without, you know, anecdotal stuff. Right. The, the, the election was absolutely stolen in one way the suppression of truth from the Hunter Biden laptop story to the fact that Mark Zuckerberg put something like $450 million in get out the vote efforts in only uh, uh, urban communities around the country, including Detroit. I mean, there were um, uh, the, the, the biasness and the suppression of news from every media outlet that now the Twitter files has confirmed happened. And so you have the FBI actively campaigning against, listen, whether you hate him or love him, I'm just telling you facts. The FBI was actively campaigning to try to suppress the votes and get people not to know what was going on. So, and Frankly, the Trump campaign allowed all this ballot harvesting and mail-in ballots to happen when my point and what I've argued for years is if Trump didn't want this to happen, he should have stopped it before it happened. Yeah. Yeah. I don't understand. It's really bad to say, oh, after it after it's over. Well, this right. isn't fair. Well, sorry. They made the you, rules are the rules. Yeah. You lost. So I don't understand why some more intelligent Republican hasn't got this messaging from somebody like you because when people ask me that question I say the same thing I'm like was there illegal ballots cast yeah sure that probably happens in every election sure. probably not enough to, to sway the the election however what was fraudulent was let's say for example in the state of California which was always going to go Democrat but we'll just use this as an example you know government Governor Newsom under the guise of COVID you know waved a magic wand signed into law I, the governor, am going to put everybody on mail-in ballots, whether you like it or not, you are automatically registered for mail-in ballots, which is illegal. It goes against the state constitution in how election laws are written. But he and many other governors in other states, they knew that by the time that worked its way through the courts, like the election was going to be over. It was signed, sealed, and delivered. So at my house, uh, which I won't give out the address because I don't live there anymore, um, uh, my house that I own that now has a renter in it, um, we got... In the mail, I have always voted in person my entire life. Um, we got my ballot. We got my wife's ballot. We got two, no, we got three ballots made out to the Chinese family that used to live there before us. And I only say that because I couldn't pronounce the name. Um, and I know for certain that the reason we bought the house is because the wife of that family passed away and the family no longer wanted to live there where they kind of, you know, delivered hospice to their mom in the house. And it was too many bad memories. That's why we were able to buy it at such a great deal. And so I got my ballot for myself and my wife, two people that don't even live there anymore, and somebody who's deceased. So I could have voted five times. To me, that's where the fraud was. It was the manipulation of these election laws under the guise of uh, under the guise of COVID, because we know going all the way back to our days in high school when it was MTV's Get Out the Vote, the, the rule has always been, yes, if everybody voted, liberals and Democrats would probably win by a landslide, but most of them don't care enough to vote. So Republicans have an edge on in-person voting. And I just don't know why anybody hasn't articulated this versus like, oh, the election was stolen. Well, yeah, kind of, but it was stolen procedurally. It wasn't stolen with like some crazy ballot harvesting in the middle of the night. And I, I don't know why nobody's talking about that. Because, like, that matters too, right? Like, our laws have to matter. Gavin Newsom shouldn't just be able to take his pen and, like, make new new edict because um, that's that's not how government's supposed to work. Well, he can do whatever he wants because you guys keep – not you, but, like, the, California keeps electing him. So they're going to get what, what, he, what he wants to do because 
they don't, I mean, they had a choice to, to get rid of him and they chose not to. So my thing is, well, they want, they want right. this. Right. So give it to them. Blows my mind. Blows my mind. I know. Um, so I, I, I've got my, I'm going to put it out here on the record um, for my conspiracy thesis for the uh, presidential primaries. I think it will, I think it'll be Trump and DeSantis and they'll find some way not to shit on each other so much. And if there's one thing that maybe, maybe Trump could like subjugate his ego for would be his kids. Maybe. And I, I could see DeSantis going to Trump in some closed door meeting at Mar-a-Lago and be like, look, man, you're really dividing people. We're going to get screwed and we're going to lose to whomever on the Democrat side. Drop out, endorse me. I'll make one of your kids my VP candidate. And in eight years when I'm done, you know, Donald Jr. or Ivanka or whoever will be the heir apparent to be the next president. Um, and like, just bow out gracefully, fucking take a mulligan, you know, endorse me. And the day you do that, I'll make your kid the vice presidential nominee. So I think you, you're in Nevada, right? Yeah. I think you should go down to the casino and plop some money on that bet. Nice. I like that. No, no, because it's such a long shot that if it hits, you'll make a lot of money. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it. You, we're gonna, we're gonna revisit this podcast in about a year, and you're gonna be like, dude, I need to hire Scott. Yeah, I, I'm in. <laughs> I will totally bring you on if this happens. <laughs> so what's what gets you fired up about? Because like, like I said in the book, you know, you deal with stuff like this, like DeSantis becoming the governor, which might lead to him becoming the president. That sounds so sexy. But what I can tell that you actually get passionate about is the small business, the termite company that you help really turn things around and take their revenues from half a million to a million. So what's what's still getting you out of bed and fired up at uh, fired up about during your your normal daily business? Well, we're in a recession, and you you can look at this moment as you're screwed, or you can look at this as an opportunity. And that's what I get up every day and think about, Scott, because rich people get rich during the bad times and poor people get poor during the bad times. And that's the same thing I tell you for your mindset. And so for me, waking up every day and knowing that, oh, we're in a moment where if we just double down on everything we're doing right now, we're going to be. 10 times more successful in five years. That's what excites me. And that's what I try to preach to business owners more than anything else right now, because, um, you know, in my marketing business, we've had a lot of scared business owners say, Oh, we got to cut marketing. And I'm right. like, really? There's nobody marketing right now. The rates are great. Like you could have, you could dominate uh, sort of your market share right now. doesn't mean you, I mean, you may break even, you may lose a little bit. You're making an investment. So when this thing turns around, there's your competition is like literally 10 miles behind you. That's how the winners win in, in downturns. That's what we're doing on all fronts right now. That's what I'm excited to help. Uh, we have a lot of companies right now that we work with that are doubling down in this moment. And that's the kind of people that we get excited to work with every day, whether it, you know, we work with NASCAR, we work in the, um, we work in the real estate markets and we work in a lot of other markets, but that those are the ones I, I want to be with the winners because in five years, when you look back, you're going to have regrets. It's like during COVID, I kind of had the same message, like right when the lockdowns happened, like you should be spending money right now. And they're like, no, everybody's in lockdown. You can't do this. You can't do that. I'm like, everybody's on their phone all day like what what do you spend the money like go <clears throat> the companies that did that by june were having record revenues and the companies that didn't were trying to catch up in june and they couldn't catch up even by the fall or the winter of the next year so yeah. this is a moment this is a moment if you're a business owner for you to like what's the opportunity or um should i go in the corner get in the fetal position and suck my thumb. Right. Yeah. And the losers don't grow. Don't, you know, the losers are the, I always said the poor get poorer in a bad economy and the rich get richer. Why is that? Because the rich don't quit. The rich are excited about the moment. And I'm super excited about what's going on right now. And when you're talking to business owners to lean in, cause that's kind of what I'm hearing. Like, Hey, you just got to do it. Even if there's not a, a financial reward today, because 
yeah, maybe there are fewer people buying widgets or whatever. What are you telling them to lean in on? Is it is it growing database? Is it growing brand awareness? Is it selling widgets to the people that can afford them? Like how are you yeah. how are you convincing business owners? Hey Scott, I know I know mortgage production is down sixty percent, but right now is the time to lean in and do what? Well, if you're doing mortgage production, it feels like there's going to be a market available in about a year. And so I'd be marketing the hell out of those people right now, because when they decide they want to make a move, who are they going to look to? The people that have ignored them the past year or the people that were in front of them over the past year? That That's what I'm saying. And what I'm saying is every business is different. B2B is different than B2C. B2C is different than e-commerce. And we work with all of these, right? Um, we worked with, you know, the Tony Robbins of the world and uh, the Peter Diamandis and Jay Abrahams and all these guys. The bottom line is that none of these guys are slowing down, right? These, uh, this is a great time. Even if you have the mindset of, of course, I'm not going to 10 X my business next year. Yeah. I may be breaking even, but at a certain point, this thing turns and I've got all the market share in that moment because I didn't quit. And I didn't just go, oh, I got to cut marketing budget. Like, it's just, I just don't, it's just such a, an anathema to me. I just can't uh, understand it. I, I understand why people do it because they have a loser mentality. I don't understand. I would never be of that, of that mindset though. I love it, man. Final two questions. And one of them you just answered, what are you most looking forward to? It's just, it's leaning in. I love that. So I got to come well, up. Well, one thing to say, I meant to say this earlier. Go. <laughs> the billion dollar companies that we all use right now, the, Twitters and the Facebooks and the Instagrams and and the stripes and the all these they all were built on the backs of the recession of 2008. There were more billion dollar companies built after to that but because of 2008 and going through that period. Facebook was around in 2008. They were around in 2004 or five is when they were created. They didn't quit. Right. They doubled down. Yeah, Zoom, and Stripe, all these-, all these places came out of 2008. All of these, like this is where billionaires are made or 100 millionaires are made or 10, 20 millionaire, you know, 10, you know, 10 million, 20 million dollar companies are made. They're on recession economies. And the ones that like literally go, well, this is a time we're going to invest in the market. This is the ones that come out winning. It just happens every time. I love it. Sorry, I got on a rant. No, I love it, man. This is why we had you on because you're passionate about it. All right, just two more fun questions. Um, I know you've got a lot. You've you've had the opportunity to meet a lot of people because of the data that you shepherd along. Um, whatever we'll name drop on the next podcast we do. But who's somebody uh, you still want to meet, or you would get a little starstruck if you met them? And uh, favorite movie and why? These are my these are my favorite questions to end with. Um. I don't know. I I think there was a point in time where I really cared about meeting uh, high high level high status people. I'm not sure I really give a shit about that anymore. <laughs> I mean, I kind of got to meet everybody over the last couple of years that I really wanted to meet. Like, I did work with uh, Mark Cuban and Tony Robbins and 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 Peter Diamandis and all this stuff, but um, I. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. The best movie is that river runs through it. I, it. It's just for me. That's my, one of my favorite movies of all time. Amazing movie. The, yeah. the, the first time I watched that and the war scene is just so visceral. Um, it really just sets the tone for the rest of the movie and it's just brutal. I mean, you know, this cause we're, uh, we're in a front row dads together, but you know, I've gotten into hunting because of uh, COVID. I, I started to hunt and I realized how much, I just love being in nature. I mean, like yesterday morning, I was sitting in a tree stand at 5 a.m. in 34 degree weather in Florida. Um, and I just like, well, shit, I just go hunt for two hours before I go to work. And when I saw River Runs Through It in college, there's something about it that attracted me to that movie that I loved. And I realized later in life, it was the being outdoors, being in the wilderness, being uh, within my own thoughts and being in the beauty in the, of nature. And that movie just encapsulates that the book is just as good. I read the book too. So, yeah. And it's, it's probably Brad Pitt at his hottest, right? I mean, he's just so good looking. 
Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> cool, man. For sure. Well, I know your time's super valuable. I want to get you out of here in time, and I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, maybe if you've got some empty space on your dance card as we come up on the next election, we can sneak 30 minutes with you to get your yeah, projections absolutely. and your ideas. Yeah, you consider it done, man. I'd do anything for you. All right, man. I appreciate it. Thank you.